1: Welcome to New Books in Media and Communications, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts featuring discussions with scholars on current subjects in communication research, media studies, and technology studies. I'm your host, John Baltz, a digital media and advertising professional. Our website is newbooksincommunications.com, where you can subscribe and find a short summary of the book discussed on today's show. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to past conversations with other authors. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. If you like us, please tell a friend or leave a review. If you don't like us, visit our website and let us know how we can be better. Your feedback helps us prepare the best, most engaging conversations possible. Today's guest is film and television scholar Jason Mattel of Middlebury College and the author of Complex TV, The Poetics of Contemporary Television, published in 2015 by New York University Press. We are said to be in a golden age of TV, The Wire, Lost, Breaking Bad, The Sopranos, Shows like these have elevated the cachet of television and introduced riskier forms of storytelling in a medium that has typically been formulaic and convention-bound. Fans and critics alike celebrate them for innovation, and television networks are filling programming slots with more and more of them. What modes of storytelling are the hallmarks of these shows? When did a critical mass of these shows emerge? What were their precursors? What changes in technology and viewing habits helped accelerate their development? Complex TV takes up these questions through a close analysis of the poetics of the television narrative. Shows that are part of Complex TV are often thought to be considered high-quality programming, but this is a book about how stories are told on television today. Bad television shows can be complex. And Jason sprinkles some of his personal views about shows between his academic analysis of their storytelling mechanics. Shows we discuss on this podcast include Veronica Mars, Curb Your Enthusiasm, The Americans, and Battlestar Galactica, just to name a few. The conversation lasts about an hour. I hope you enjoy it. My guest today is Jason Mattel, a professor of film and media culture and American studies at Middlebury College. His research interests span a wide range. They include television history and criticism, media and cultural history, genre theory, narrative theory, animation and children's media, video games, digital humanities, new media studies, and technological convergence. He is the faculty director of Middlebury's Digital Liberal Arts Initiative, which expands the use of digital tools to help faculty innovate in their research and creative work. And he's also been actively posting this year on his blog, Just TV. Jason, welcome to the New Books in Media and Communications podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, John.
1: Now... Complex television, Uh, you write, that is not a genre. It is, quote, a storytelling mode, uh, a set of associated production and reception practices that span a wide range of programs across an array of genres. How and when do you come to see that innovations in narration and storytelling devices were changing?
0: So it's something that that really... I started noticing fairly early on in my career as a grad student in the 90s, studying media studies um, with a focus in television. I noticed every once in a while a show would pop up that seemed to be doing things differently. So um, one that I distinctly remember, uh, you know, even before grad school was Twin Peaks and um, at a similar time Seinfeld. These shows clearly were not Following the way that television normally works, and that 's one of the reasons why I really enjoyed them and then uh, in the throughout the 90s x files was one of my favorite shows as well and in all of these shows, there was a, a degree of self consciousness there was a willingness to play with form. And uh, embracing new strategies that that didn't seem typical of the norm, but they they felt very much like exceptions and almost kind of an elite form of television. Um, clearly, Twin Peaks was was not normal television. Um, and but even the S Files, because of its sci-fi context, it, it gave it license to do things differently. But when I really started noticing, wait, something different is going on, was. Um, in uh, 2000 2001, and there were a couple of uh, distinct examples. One was an episode of The West Wing, where um, I believe it was the first season finale, where the episode starts at a moment that's kind of confusing. They're prepping for a speech, and then the sort of the teaser before the credits escalates to a point of. Um, crisis and climax, and then you get the credits and then you come back and it says something like three days earlier. Hmm. And I thought that that's kind of different. I don't remember having seen that on television before. And then a year later in 2001, Alias debuts and Alias starts the pilot episode and a good number of his episodes that way. And now it's almost a J.J. Abrams cliche that that's the way you would structure it. Um, a story where you start at a moment of climax and then flash back a few days before to tell us how we got there. And that seemed unusual for a show that wasn't necessarily set up as a, as, as art TV or something really distinctive or unusual or groundbreaking. So, and then I just started seeing devices like that over and over again. Same time that alias debuted, um, 24 debuted and 24 is very strange in that its entire point is that it has a storytelling structure. That's unique real-time or, or so-called real-time. Um, there are a lot of cheats, but, you know, that basic idea. So this started to fascinate me. is that Why is this happening? What's changing that we're seeing it not just on self-defined uh, you know, prestige television, um, not just on HBO with The Sopranos and Deadwood emerging at that time, um, but also on programs like... Alias or Twenty Four, mainstream network fair that was trying to distinguish itself through narrative.
1: Hmm. Now, you write about shows on premium cable channels, basic cable channels, network television. I think there'd be ones that listeners would all be familiar with: Wire, Game of Thrones, Dexter, Breaking Bad, things like that. You know, yep. I was thinking um, a lot, particularly for the ones that are on premium cable or even on some of the. the the basic cable channels, AMC or something, um, we see these television content ratings that appear before them, right? Mm-hmm. Some sort of TV MA rating for mature with these boxes, right? And they state GV for graphic violence or N for nudity or something like that. I thought about this rating system, um, and, and I couldn't sort of help but imagine what, Say you were developing a rating system <laughs> <laughs> for... This for complex for a complex television show that was about to air, uh, how you might what you might put in that box or how you might right. uh, have that screen look
0: right I mean you know the idea of ratings are usually a sort of a warning for what might be coming that you know alerting so parents can uh, choose wisely um, I think one of the interesting things about this mode of storytelling that i 'm exploring in the book is that part of its joy is the surprise, the fact that it is unconventional. So, you know, you wouldn't want to necessarily say, you know, multiple perspectives, MP or flat, you know, FB for flashback, because part of the joy of these programs is the feeling of surprise that you get with, wow, I can't believe they're telling the story that way instead of a more conventional way. And I think that, you know, one of the terms I use in the book is that, um, Storytelling strategies can become uh, what I call a storytelling special effect or a narrative special effect where you you uh, stare in amazement that they pulled off, whether it's a twist or some radical shift or something very, very unexpected. So. I think that a, a narrative rating system would go against that pleasure, but certainly there are a lot of techniques that, uh, that we see that become almost conventional. I mentioned the how we got there flashback, you know, at the beginning of an episode, the idea of multiple perspective or the special episode that is special, not because of the old sort of 80s sitcom, very special episode that deals with something touching and heartbreaking, but rather a special episode because it tells the story in a different way. You know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer was a classic program that did this many times. You know the musical episode, or the silent episode, or the episode from Andrew's perspective, or the episode that um, put uh, Xander at the you know as the hero. So all these these sort of episodes that do things differently and call attention to it um and we feel that pleasure as viewers like oh wow this this episode is distinct um so i think that that is a, a real pleasure of the form
1: that is a good point uh, mystery and suspense clearly would would uh be defeated with a with a rating with a rating system before maybe put it at the at the end of the show as, a, as well. what you saw
0: and i'll say that there is an almost um you know unofficial version of that, which is the website TV Tropes, which if you've, you know, anyone who's listening to this who has never been to TV Tropes, I apologize in advance because it's pretty much impossible to go to that site and and leave within an hour because it's it's this massive collection of not just television, but almost all storytelling media of tropes and strategies and devices and cliches that are used. And uh, it's, I, I find it incredibly pleasurable to browse to see all these examples and then click through and find related examples and and uh, norms
1: alongside this growth and rise in in complex tv is of course changes in the industry itself technological commercial innovations um, potentially disruptions to spending depending on your point of view that have been yep. occurring over the last couple decades with this what, what are some of those changes and how how do you see them aligning so the um
0: The rise of what I call complex narration is not just because creative geniuses came up with new ways to tell stories. Um, It's very much, I think, everything when we understand television. It's a commercial medium. So shifts in the industry and and often the technology are hugely important. Um, So there are a few that that I talk about. One is, is certainly the diversification of what channels and networks program scripted television so if we go back to the 90s the early 90s even though cable was very prominent and um you know a large portion of the viewing audience had cable um there weren't that many cable channels that were programming scripted programming um you know fiction they tended to be either nonfiction, whether it's news or sports or how-to um or other forms of entertainment like music um and the like so uh what we see really in the uh, late 90s is the rise of scripted programming on first premium cable with HBO's sort of uh, juggernauts that emerged first, um, you know, Oz and Sex in the City, and then later The Sopranos as the one that shows this can be not only adventurous and innovative, but also profitable. Um, and so premium cable becomes one place, and then also uh, basic cable. So FX programs the Shield. And uh USA develops a whole bunch of original programs as well. And then later in the decade, AMC makes its mark by the doubleheader of Mad Men and Breaking Bad. So the fact that you have a lot more outlets allows for more... Innovative and experimental programs to uh, sort of sneak through the cracks. Typically, if you go back to the '80s, it's really, really hard to do anything incredibly groundbreaking or innovative because there's just a bottleneck. You know, you can't get a show on the air unless one of the big three networks approves it, and that really changes. So that that so more programming and more outlets for programming. And tied to that is, of course, most of these cable channels what they define as a hit is not the 30 million viewers that were watching hit shows in the seventies. It was a smaller audience of depending on the era, you know, anywhere between, you know, three to 8 million would be considered a really big hit for a lot of basic cable. And now, you know, even getting a million on a basic cable channel or a premium cable channel can be enough to sustain a multi-year run. So, I think that there's a a shift in the threshold of what success is considered. And if you are aiming at a much smaller audience – then you can be a lot more targeted. So you can aim at an audience that wants something that's going to challenge them, that's going to make them think, that's going to make them rewatch, that's going to make them go online and consult fan sites to figure out what's going on, to be motivated to go and have conversations, whether in person or on social media, about these stories. Um, So it becomes less about getting a mass audience, but rather a dedicated, highly engaged niche. And that really fits with this mode of storytelling that is all about paying close attention and uh, really leaning into the program. So that's one huge shift that's part of it. Um, Another really big one is uh, technology. The fact that, you know, when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, I remember, you know, before we even had a VCR, sometimes. doing audio tape recording of my favorite program. So I could re listen to them. Um, that's not a very effective way to relive a program. Then the rise of VCR were allow people to, to time shift or record for multiple viewing. But the evidence suggests that a tiny portion of people actually did that because people didn't know how to program their VCRs. And it was just a pain. Um, So in the 2000s, you have two really important shifts. Number one is uh, DVRs, digital video recorders, where if you have a DVR, being able to time shift and rewatch something becomes the default rather than the exception. So you just say, I want to go ahead and get a season pass to watch every episode of Lost, and you're just automatically going to get it, and then you have it on your computer, basically on this you know, dedicated computer, and you can rewatch it as much as you want. Um, that's a one big shift. The other big shift, which actually started a little bit in the 90s but really took hold in the early 2000s, is TV on DVD. Um Again, the idea in the 80s, if you had told people you're going to be able to buy a television season and have it on your shelf and be able to watch it as much as you want, that would only be appealing to the narrowest slice of hardcore fans on cult programs like Star Trek. Um It really was not something that had a, a broad-based uh appeal. So what was shown in the late 90s and early 2000s is that you could actually sustain an audience by DVDs. So we saw things like The Sopranos, where certainly a lot of people watched it on HBO, but there was a whole second wave of viewing that happened once each season came out on DVD. So that changes both what how people watch and are able to rewatch and consume things not in weekly installments, but in a compressed time period, which allows for a lot more dense and uh, multifaceted mode of storytelling, but also the cultural legitimacy. So the idea that you would tell someone, Oh, I'm so into the Sopranos and I bought the full season and I'm watching it multiple times. You know, that, that seems normal to us now. But again, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, someone who did that with a t- TV show would be seen as, as highly skeptical. You know, that's something you do for books or films. Uh, television was really a much more lowbrow and less legitimate medium.
1: W- with that DVD example, you point to some cases where there are switches between what you would see in the DVD uh, and on the actual show, the best example you give with the Veronica Mars with a totally different opening. Yeah. Um how how common is that in the box sets, uh, and is it largely just sort of swapping out maybe inconsistencies that will appear during the regular programming?
0: Yeah, it's, it's not highly common, although there's um, – I mean, so there are two ways that it can play out. One is when you actually get a different version. So Veronica Mars – It was a case where the original script and the original version of the pilot that Rob Thomas, the creator of the show, um, uh, created um, started with a very film noir opening and the uh the network thought this is a teen drama we want to make sure it reads as a teen drama so the opening that they used in the original broadcast was in the high school daytime very bright very cheery happy music um and that's actually the second scene in the original director's cut um and when they released it on dvd they restored the original version which is much better in terms of the the sort of concept of the show and 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 again uses that old now old trope of starting at a climactic moment and then flash forward in 72 hours to see how we got there um so part of that i think is is there are a few moments like that where there's a sort of director's cut version um more common is bonus content uh so we we've seen this as a whole transition that happens in film culture in the two thousands as well. The idea is that you're not just buying or Less so renting the film, you're buying a whole set of paratests as well. And that really has emerged for some television shows. So you're getting a lot of commentary tracks. You're getting uh, promotional materials. You're getting deleted scenes. You're getting all this additional material. And to the point that, you know, Lost was very aggressive in this strategy and their box sets had you know, toys and they had uh, little clues towards some of the mysteries. So all these sort of like physical items um to promote sales. And and that was that really boomed in the mid two thousands. Um you know now the D V D market is more or less dried up, and you know everything is is seen as streaming as the important uh, market. So, um, but this idea that you're buying something, you're buying an experience, you're buying a set of objects uh, rather than just the show itself.
1: Now, yeah. because this complex television is, it's not a genre. You end up writing obviously about about dramas, suspense, mysteries. You also write about comedies. They're sort of all in there. Can you talk a little bit about some of the specific features of complexity that differ from the dramas and suspense-driven mysteries than from, say, the comedies like maybe Curb Your Enthusiasm or Arrested Development?
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the important – one of the important elements that I talk about in the book that I think is really crucial to understanding this mode of storytelling um, is a concept called the operational aesthetic, and this concept basically it derives from a great book um, called Humbug, which is a cultural history of um, P.T. Barnum, written by Neil Harris. is about you know probably 25 or more years old, but in it. Um, Harris talks about how the um, how Barnum, what he was selling in these uh, carnival events and um, experiences, was not just spectacle, but a sense of watching how the machinery of spectacle was delivered and trying to figure out how it worked. So the operational aesthetic re- refers to watching something. And simultaneously engaging with its um, its sort of content and its form, or the way that it's put together. So you're trying to see how it operates. Um, So getting to your question, this is this is really important, I think, in many, if not all forms of, uh, narrative complexity that I talk about, but it gets articulated very differently in comedy and drama. So in comedy, it's a lot more common, uh, traditionally to have that mode of reflexivity where you call you're calling attention to the way in which a, uh, a joke is being delivered or the story is being constructive in a kind of reflexive and often, um, uh, what's the word, uh, not, not mocking way, but self-deprecating way. Um, hmm. and you know, th- that becomes a point of pleasure is you know, sort of making fun of itself. Um, and, uh, and playing things for laugh often through satire. So that's, that is, is typical. And we see this to some degree in some of the, you know, so-called complex, um, comedies so something like Your enthusiasm calls attention often to its own artificiality you know Larry David is a television writer, and often this stuff about making television and it sort of calls attention to to its own form. Arrested Development does that even more in the way that it is a sort of pseudo documentary in this way. Um, so, in th- those ways, the operational aesthetic is often played for laughs, and it's very consistent with a mode of uh, reflexivity. What's interesting with dramas is that they can present these. Um, this awareness of the storytelling itself without actually like, disrupting the emotional engagement of the drama. So um, one of my favorite examples that I use is um, in an episode of Battlestar Galactica, uh, which the it's in the second season toward the end of the second season. And, one of the norms of the show is that the the story time moves fairly slowly. So I think the first season and a half of the series took approximately 90 days of the story. So, you know, it's more time in our world watching than it was in the character's world living it. Um, so it's fairly compressed in that way. And then there's this moment in this episode where... A big climactic thing has happened. This character, Baltar, has been elected president, but he really doesn't know what he's doing. And he's kind of a, he's a liar and has deceived his way to the presidency for ulterior motives. And we get this slow zoom in to him sitting at his desk and he puts his head down at his desk and we get a close up of his dark hair. And there's a subtle dissolve to another shot with close hair. And then we zoom back and we're in the exact same place but I think uh, 18 months have passed in that one shot, in that one invisible edit. And the effect that that has on viewers is this sort of jaw-dropping, like, whoa, what just happened? And those moments of what just happened, that's the operational aesthetic. Like you, You pay attention to the storytelling. It's not just that, oh, I wonder what happened to Baltar in those 18 months. That's important, and we care about that. Um, But we are also marveling at the audacity of doing that type of jump, right? And it doesn't it doesn't work against that emotional engagement in the story. In fact, it complements it. There's that sense of like, wow. Similarly, like the excitement in an action movie when you see a giant explosion, you kind of marvel at that explosion. Like, how do they pull off that big stunt? But we also care about that explosion within the within the the story world.
1: Do you, Do you think that emotional engagement is is easier to retain because of the suspension of belief and reality that just is part of Dramas and, and suspense mysteries that is lo- slightly less so even with over-the-top comedies?
0: Um, I mean, it can be, although, you know, I mean, I can think of similar moments where we really pay attention to the storytelling itself in more so-called realistic shows. Uh, the Sopranos, um, certainly, um, you know, Six Feet Under does this a lot. Uh, Six Feet Under, which is, a, you know, a family melodrama, Um, but it does a lot of playful storytelling elements. Um, it has a, um, what I call an intrinsic norm, uh, sort of a pattern that it follows within the show itself, where the beginning of every episode starts with the death of the week, you know, the story, it's about people who, a family that runs a funeral home. So death is a constant in, uh, in their lives and in the storytelling itself each week, uh, the episode starts with someone dying. And then usually one of the plot lines is that body getting to the funeral home and them doing whatever they're going to do with it. Um, and uh, those deaths of the week become more and more elaborate and often playful almost. So like it will start with a scene, but it seems like something out of like a, a, you know, a serial killer attacking someone. And then we cut to realize we're actually watching a film And we're watching the actress in the film watching herself on screen so that she's not actually the person who's going to die. But then the actress goes into the bathroom at the premiere party of this film and, you know, overdoses on drugs and dies. Right. So there's this real playful moment that, you know, as a viewer, someone here is going to die. Like there's no suspense about that. There will be a death because that's what the show does. The question is, how will they die? And who will it be? And then how will the storytelling reveal this in a playful, twisty way? So I think that, that that's not it's not the sort of artificiality of sci fi, which I think is it can be very important. But I think there's a real sense of we know that that storytelling is happening. Like, I think that a lot of people personally, I believe that most people can be simultaneously immersed in a story and aware that it is being told to them right? I don't think people really forget while they're watching a film, even a really compelling film, that they're sitting in a movie theater watching a film, right? And people always are aware of that. And um, these types of narrative devices help call attention to that mechanism in a way that I think can be very pleasurable. Um, You see that in a lot of films as the, the same time that Complex television emerges as a really uh, sort of dominant form of storytelling. There's also the rise of the so-called puzzle film, with things like Sixth Sense or Fight Club, um, mm-hmm. or you know Memento. In these films, that the way in which they're telling the story and the twists and tricks that it's using become part of the pleasure of the storytelling itself. So that's the operational aesthetic within film.
1: For film directors, have often said at an elevated position in the hierarchy of the industry. Um, Is it fair, a fair read on your book to basically say that complex television has elevated writers to the top of the TV industry?
0: Well, I wouldn't say that um, complex television has done that. I think that, um, that has been the norm within the industry for decades. Um, You know, so Horace Newcomb, who's one of the sort of founders of television studies as a field, um, is so famously called television the producer's medium. And producer on television, it can mean many things, but generally the head writer is seen as the executive producer. And today the term that is used is the showrunner. And that's true, that role is true, whether it's a highly complex narrative or a very conventional sitcom or cop show. Um, the showrunner is the executive producer who's typically the head writer manages the writer's room and oversees the production and has final cut of every episode. Ultimately, you know, the, that figure needs to approve the, the final, you know, the final edit. Um, whereas typically in a film, the director has that role. So yes, it is a very different role. Um, the interesting thing and one of the things I talk about in the book is our notion of authorship is really uh, unusual in television um, because it is a writer, which is more consistent with literature certainly than film. Uh, the director is author, um, but it's a writer who runs a writer's room. So the individual writer of a given episode of television is not necessarily the author Like we know Joss Whedon to be the author of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, even though he may not have written most of the episodes, you know, but he's the head writer. So ultimately, even though an episode is credited to someone else, it's Joss Whedon's responsibility and ultimate authorial vision that we, that we sort of attribute the program to. Um, Yeah.
1: Uh, Yeah. I want to follow up on this because this is interesting. I mean, so in my world, in in psychology, we have this, odd term called pareidolia um, which essentially is referring to a tendency to perceive some kind of specific or meaningful image in in a ambiguous random visual pattern and the common okay. example of this is something like someone sees the virgin mary in grilled cheese sandwich Yeah, um, and i I was reading this part about authorship, and there seemed to be this sort of similar tendency uh, to a, assign authorship over a very messy, fast-moving process with huge numbers of people, potentially, um, into not just a singular author, but sometimes an author who may not be involved even in the process anymore. Right. Um, I understand why viewers are doing that or sort of what it. Brings, but how, how do you think that tendency on the viewing side either supports or inhibits show development as the seasons progress?
0: Oh, that's interesting. So, um, yeah, I mean, we tend to want to create a, a sort of singular anthropomorphic, uh, you know, rational creative entity to bear responsibility for everything we see and hear. Right on on a TV show like you know the here's this figure and I think it ranges as to that there are some viewers who watch without any idea who that figure is you know they probably attribute it to this vague kind of they you know oh why did they do that is the question you might ask if there's a unusual moment in a show or what were they thinking um, a lot of more dedicated viewers will engage with with paratexts to understand the authorial process. So whether it's the following the Twitter feed of the showrunners or the uh, listening to a podcast um, or reading interviews or or what have you, Um, I think that the idea that people are in control is something that viewers want um, very much. To believe, um, and I, I, make the parallel with religious faith in, in the book. I, I think that we want to believe that there is a guiding force and an order to the universe. And whether you do believe that is, you know, religiously or not doesn't really matter. I think that when we, when we think about stories, we don't want to think that this is just a random collection of events that someone's just sort of spinning and, and putting together. We want to feel like there's a plan. And especially when there's a very complex narrative with overarching plot lines that you know questions are raised in episode four that are not answered for another year and a half we want to believe that people knew what they were doing when they asked those questions right <laughs> um and i think that there's often really a tension there that plays out um there's a, the the example i use in the book that is a really interesting one is is the show lost um whose authorship uh structures and engagement is really unique. Um, first in the show was developed by JJ J. Abrams and Damon Lindloff. And, um, Abrams was a known quality quantity at the time. He had uh, created uh, um, the show Alias, which I mentioned earlier, um, but he also, you know, was a rising star in Hollywood. And he actually left Lost to direct Mission Impossible 3 and really launched his whole film career, which obviously we know now is, you know, his bread and butter as director of both Star Trek and Star Wars franchises. Um, so, uh, J.J. Abrams was involved in the, the initial development and the, some of the writing of the first season, but he had a much more hands-off role going forward, and yet people still attribute the show to him. Like it's Damon, It's J.J.'s show, and uh, people attribute it to him. Damon Lindelof had far less of a track record and was not a known commodity, so he, after J.J. left... Um, really asserted his own identity as a way to say, no, look, I'm in charge of this. And, you know, it's not JJ's show. It's my show. And he brought in Carlton Cuse as a co showrunner to work with him. And they they had a podcast that was probably the first really successful um, showrunner podcast. He was really active on Twitter. He really had a a personality like these TV writers would appear on um, Jimmy Kimmel, which again, When I was a kid, TV writers don't go on TV. They're behind the scenes. You don't know who they are. Um, So they were the first uh, or some some of the first star showrunners in this way. Um, And they said that there was this constant conflict that they were facing and that fans always reached out to them and said, we want you to have a plan. We want you to have a master plan where all of the questions you've raised have been answered and that everything has a logic and it's airtight. At the same time, fans said, we want you to be responsive to the fans. We don't like this character. We love this character. We want you to do this, make sure this doesn't happen, et cetera. So this is a contradiction, the idea that there's a master plan where everything is set in stone, and yet you're going to be flexible and responsive to what fans like and what they don't like. That doesn't make sense in that regard, but I think that that's what most people want to feel is happening. Their writers know exactly what they're doing, and yet they value my input. And that's a really weird situation. And it's part of the nature of seriality. The idea that things are happening in a succession with gaps between the installments so that when I watch an episode of like, you know, early in a season, I know that they are still producing later episodes in that season. So I feel like if I tweet at the showrunner and tell him, don't kill that character, they might listen. And it may matter in that way. <laughs> um, So I think that's a really interesting dynamic that's at play, that we feel like these people are simultaneously gods, but also accessible.
1: With that human connection, to me, I've always thought it's a way to essentially give someone more rope, uh, but then potentially once it goes beyond some level of acceptance, I mean, at some point you just become, what's going on here, Um, that you then – Overcompensate and, and swing back harshly and say, ah, oh, you know, this person blew it. This yeah. fictitious sole author just ruined it.
0: Yes. And the way that, I mean, there's, I mean, again, Loss is a good example. Damon Lindelof was. Firstly, like, hailed as the great, um, the phrase I use is fanboy auteur, where he, you know, he was really well known as this like total geeky fan of all these sci-fi properties, and thus he had authenticity amongst one set of the fan base. Um, but when things in Lost did not end the way that some people wanted, and I'll, I'll go on record and say I really like the ending of Lost. that them, the show works just fine. Um, but uh, but that's by no means a unanimous opinion, right? There's a a large portion of lost viewers who were very frustrated with the ending, and he became a pariah because of that and was constantly attacked and was this butt of the joke that he's, you know, this horrible writer that let us all down. And fans said flat out, you know, this invalidates the entire series, which in my mind is completely, um, you know, it makes no sense, like, that here's this... Property that you loved for six years, and you invested all this time into, it and it gave you immense pleasure, and because the final hour didn't do what you wanted it to do, the, that entire thing gets gets written off as as invalid. I mean, that seems completely uh, incoherent in that way. Um, and again, seriality and the way in which serial storytelling plays out in real time. Creates all these really strange dynamics of viewer expectations and authorial feedback, and the role of uh, paratexts and online fan cultures gaining these this momentum and and be often becoming empowered to sort of rewrite things on their own terms. It's all very very fascinating and hopefully I capture some of that in the book.
1: Within the shows themselves, I suppose the people we both love and hate or become exasperated with are these main characters. Right, heroes are. Or- sort of now a fixture uh a commonality of complex tv they're typically men Mm -hmm. uh maybe carrie and homeland sort of as an example of someone who's not but why aren't there more female anti-heroes
0: yeah it's an interesting question i think that um You know, it's hard to know exactly, um, especially when we're talking about a very complicated process of developing a television fiction. Um, I don't know whether there are a lot of of comparable female anti-heroes being pitched to networks and channels that are getting rejected or whether people aren't just developing them. In general, um, if, if we're thinking about dramas and we're thinking about the sort of Um, highly lauded dramas that are not always are sort of have these qualities of complex narration that I talk about. But one of the ways that people tend to talk about this is, is the term quality TV, which I I, I'm not a fan of. I don't think it's very useful. Uh, I think a better term is prestige television where these programs are made for, um, Sort of critical appreciation and awards. They hope they get good ratings, but you know, there's a sense of we're trying to do something that's innovative and and prestigious here. Um, Those programs tend to be dominated by male characters. Um, I think that you know the cultural legitimacy accorded afforded to men especially professional men um at the height of their powers whether it's legal like Don Draper or illegal like Tony Soprano is um you know is very much still a male realm um i think that you know you can point to a few examples of programs where you have uh main characters who may you know, female characters who might be considered anti-heroes something like Damages um which is an FX show uh that never did that well and the ratings never really found a sort of critical place that everyone said yes this is really the the character i mean sorry the the sort of the equivalent to the anti-hero character um you know there are other shows that people have pointed to and said, well maybe maybe that's what's happening um but in general, I think our cultural assumptions are that women are supposed to be likable and look, women characters, and that we get, we bristle or at least the industry assumes that we will bristle they've not given us a chance to engage with a character who is uh unlikable, amoral. Uh, as sort of Machiavellian as, you know, Tony Soprano or as selfish as Don Draper or as self-deluded and all of the above as Walter White, Breaking Bad. So I think that there's a real sense that, um, you know, women are not afforded that chance to be, play that type of character. I, I really can't tell you whether, if there were a great, equivalent to the female Walter White if that show would resonate with audiences. Um, I, my guess is it probably wouldn't that our preconceptions and prejudices would reject such a character.
1: Well, there's still room to go for complex TV then. that's Yes, that's there a, is. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I want to shift in the last part of the conversation to a, a few other um, lighter, potentially lighter subjects, but I also want to talk about the process for writing this book for you yeah. it was unique. You treated it like a piece of television, right? Where you well, well, I, I shouldn't say there are a lot of storytelling t- right. tech modes that are not in this, for example. Yes, but, yes, um, I
0: don't start at the you know at the climaxes <laughs> flashback. There's no, yes,
1: there is no flashback, um, and you are a single author. Um, yes, but you published it serially. Mm-hmm. Uh, you used an online forum. Uh, what'd you learn in that process, and would you do it again?
0: Uh, well, l- let me quickly describe what I did, because um, I think it's it's for a lot of certainly a lot of academics, but I think anyone who's is a, a writer, it's it's a little unusual. Um, I'm involved with an organization called Media Commons, which is uh, a been running now for about ten years, and our goal is to create an online social—not social network, but a professional network and publishing space for media scholars um, to do forms of publishing that traditional print could not allow for. Um, and one of the co-founders of Media Commons, Kathleen Fitzpatrick. A few years ago uh, wrote a book called um, Planned Off's Lessons about academic publishing and she did the very unusual thing of releasing a full draft of her book onto media commons in a platform that allowed for uh, reader comments in the margins. Um, And she called this Open Peer Review, with the idea being that she wanted to get feedback from a wide range of people out in the open and and have a conversation about the book, rather than just have it be a bound object that there's no, you know, any interaction is just on the reader's behalf, but not involving the author or broader community. Um, And Kathleen said that this was very successful in a lot of ways. um, But one of the ways that it was not as successful was that she found like a lot of the comments were in the first third of the book. And then they really petered out throughout, suggesting that people kind of lost momentum or either didn't finish reading or sort of lost impetus to to comment. Um, So when she told me that, I thought, well, this is interesting. I'd be interested in doing an open peer review uh, format. I'm really uh committed to open access publishing and coming up with new forms of, uh, engaging the public, uh, as an academic. But given that the topic of my book is about seriality, I thought it would be really interesting to try serializing the book. So, uh, what I did was starting in, uh, 2012, I started posting a chapter about every two or three weeks, um, onto media commons. And uh, releasing it and making you know, announcements on social media, on my blog, etc., cetera, to try to get viewers, not viewers, uh, readers to come and read it and to offer feedback. Um, and uh, I think it was fairly successful in some regards. I think the, the biggest success was that the book itself became something that people knew about and could cite and engage with Prior to its publication, so it was a very strange situation where the in the book that is published now, the physical book um, with NYU Press, uh, there are citations to works that are citing the book itself um, because the book was portions of the book were released in 2012 online, the fact that the published version in 2015 had a lag allowed me to revise and cite things that were citing itself. So that's a really interesting feedback loop that's um, I've not seen before. And I think it actually fits a lot of the themes of the book. Um, so I really liked that, that it was in public circulation and being referenced and being read based on the site hits. Um, and I know that it was being taught in courses and the like. So I think that was
1: really let me, positive. Let me stop yeah. you there for one second because I just want to clarify one, one – one, I want to get one clarification here, which is yep. maybe for others in other disciplines. So the serialization process, though, was different from just having, say, a working paper out there. Right, where an academic would put out, you know, take a social science discipline, would put out a working paper, right. right, and have people comment on it. This, this seemed to be different, where you were on a schedule, uh, and later chapters would sort of be changed or be included or whatnot based on that feedback.
0: Right. So it was a a full draft of the entire manuscript. So I mean, that's one big difference. You know, most people who do working papers do not do it at a a book Mm -hmm. level, do it at an article level. Um, So that's one difference. The other thing is, yes, it was a sort of scheduled rollout. Um, And, you know, I'm an academic. So did I keep to my schedule? No. (laughs) But, you know, the the goal was to have some sort of uh, routine in a sense of, okay, every two or three weeks there would be a new chapter released so that that there was a sense of momentum there. Um, And yes, it was a draft of the whole book. And I would but I would be reading the feedback and responding in more or less real time and then making revisions to the chapters for the final publication. Um, To your question as to would I do it again, I think that, you know, there were a number of issues that that this raised. So the goal was to – I started posting, I believe, in March 2012. I think it was March. um, And my goal was – to have it all done and posted by the, uh, you know, by that fall and sort of have it roll out over. I think it was the original plan was around six or seven months. Um, the problem was is that when I started posting in March, I had not written the entire book. I'd, I had drafts of about half of the chapters done, and I was working on the others in various sort of levels of completion. Um, but there were a couple of chapters that were giving me problems, uh, and I put those off in large part because I wanted to have – more foundation of the ideas in the other chapters to feel like there's, you know, okay, the peer rev- the, the comments, the the commentary I'm getting, the reviews, the emails, you know, what have you, are pointing, like, these are good directions, these are things I can build on. Um, what happened, though, was in large part because it took a lot of time to monitor that feedback, respond to it, and make the revisions that they were suggesting, the, the ones that I agreed with, and... Um, that I, I lost focus and wasn't really able to finish those final two chapters, in, according to my schedule, um, one of them was delayed mostly because of the just sort of the lag in in time and the lack of availability in time. One of them, though, actually, I was completely stumped on what to do with, and I completely radically overhauled what that was all about. And I had this gap, this period of around nine months, where I had a writer's block in public, um, in that there were people who knew that this book was in process and being rolled out, and yet. It wasn't coming. And, um, you know, I don't think that this was like, I didn't have a uh, sort of army of fans waiting for the next episode, but I had a couple people who said, hey, that chapter I'm kind of counting on for this, for my dissertation or the like, is that going to, can you tell me when it's going to be out? Um, So that really stymied me. The good thing, though, is that that gap turned out to be incredibly productive. The the chapter was, uh, the chapter called Serial Melodrama. And I really, didn't know it's i knew some of the points i wanted to grapple with but i the argument was really sort of incoherent in in a lot of ways and it wasn't until an article that was published during that gap um that came out after i should have finished the chapter basically um by linda williams that laid out a different approach to melodrama that really changed my entire thinking and and made the entire chapter click for me so it 's strange that you know the, the serialized process made the book get delayed in a way that 's negative, but the book that could have been written had it not been delayed would not have been been as successful at least in that chapter. so it was very productive in that way. Um, would I do it again? Probably not because the time commitment was just too much. Will I find other ways to create open access or online versions of my work? 100%. I think that that's, that's fabulous. And I don't ever want to write something that is so locked away that People can't read it in a, in a fairly accessible way, um, so I'm really investigating new forms of publication and, uh, and engagement in uh, via uh, online being the primary you know mode of delivery.
1: That's good to hear. Um, for staying on, you in the book offer some some views, some criticisms of shows, basically sort of what you like, don't like, things like that. Um, <laughs> so I was I was wondering if. Uh, if you' so this is not about like don 't like peace but uh, if you 'd indulge in a, in a lightning round of of sort of how complex is it for some shows that are not in the book <laughs> okay uh, and, and I
0: will say uh, before I do this, I just want to say that i I try to make clear that complexity is not equal to quality, and there are shows that you know exhibit a lot of signs of narrative complexity that I think are not very good shows. Twenty-four is some of the example I use. And there are other shows that I think are great shows that are not very narratively complex. And everybody loves Raymond is an example I always use. I think that's a great sitcom and it has almost none of these features, right? Yes. So so just just to note, by me saying this is not complex doesn't mean that it's not good.
1: Yes. I will emphasize that for I will I will emphasize that on just to repeat you because it's a good point complexity is not quality it's not good bad it's about the modes of storytelling um so i i I don't know maybe 10 is something like lost or close to lost right yeah and if one is something i don't know mike and molly or something some kind of uh typical uh sitcom comedy um the americans
0: I knew you were going to ask this. Uh, so The Americans is interesting. I think that in, in many ways it's fairly straightforward in its narrative form. Um, the thing that I think makes it a little bit more, I mean, it is highly serialized and, you know, that has become a, a sort of crucial element of a lot of, t- a lot of TV drama today. Um, but it's not very reflective. It doesn't use the operational aesthetic that much, except for one main thing. The fact that it's a period piece that is constantly calling attention to these historical moments that we know about, um, we are alert to the way, how are they going to tell that story? Right. So we're, we're always thinking, especially those of us who are, you know, have distinct memories of the 80s. We're thinking about how are they going to sort of represent in the first season, like Ronald Reagan's assassination attempt? Um, how are they going to represent the you know, 1984 Olympics? Like these are important events in the history of the Cold War. So that's a way that I think the operational aesthetic is, is going on. So I'd say on, on our spectrum, maybe a six.
1: Okay. Uh, Big Love. You
0: know, Big Love is a show I, I haven't really watched much, um, so I really can't speak to the very specific modes of, of storytelling.
1: Okay. <laughs> Sorry to say. That's going yep. um, Going back a few years here, Rome.
0: Ooh. What I remember of it, I only saw a few episodes. It was fairly straightforward. Serialized, yes, but, but fairly straightforward in its its narrative presentation. Like maybe like oh, in the four
1: realm mm. or something. Okay. I don't know.
0: It, I, I didn't watch all of it. So,
1: how to get away with murder?
0: Uh, very much engaging with, uh, the complexity of the the, how do we get here starting with the the murder and, and and whatever, and very much sort of like having that puzzle mode that that we're trying to engage with. Um, at the same time, it is, uh, not as focused on, um, sort of uh, attempting to, uh, to do a lot of other innovative devices, so I'd mm-hmm. say maybe an eight or
1: so. Interesting. There's so much jumping around. Yeah. in the Show. Um, it's a lot. Yeah. But you're right. It's sort of that's this, this the dominant mode. Yes. Um, community.
0: So community is is interesting. It's very much you know it it embodies that. Every episode can be completely different in its mode, right? So, you know, you have episodes that embrace a particular genre, embrace a particular, um, you know, style have a sort of the bottle episode where, you know, that has these narrative parameters, the video game episode, the animated episode, et cetera. So in that way, it's very, very high. The other thing that's very, very high is a very overt authorial presence where Dan Harmon not only is incredibly active on social media, but There are references to his social media feuds and engagements on the show itself. Um, That being said, at its core, it has a fairly conventional sitcom heart. I Mm -hmm. think so. um, Which again is not necessarily a a sort of lack of complexity, but it's not. I mean, I would say it's. I would call it a nine simply because I I think that um, Arrested Development is more purely about the complexity and the storytelling structure. Than community is, um, and there are episodes of community that are pretty conventional.
1: So I could probably do these all day, but I'll do two yeah. two quick more ones. Uh, yeah, you mentioned this for only a couple pages, but uh, so I wasn't quite sure where you fall on this. But girls,
0: so um, I'll say I love girls. I think girls is a, a wonderful. Great show. Um, I don't think it's highly complex in terms of its narrative features, um, but it is highly, highly reflexive in the way in which it creates its authorial voice, right? So the fact that it is created by uh, Lena Dunham and she's the star and she's playing a parody version of herself, um, you know, it makes it very similar in some ways to Louie. Um, another show that that I think is, is comparable, and in, in, in very different ways, but you know, in a continuum with something like Herb Your Enthusiasm*, where you know, yes, Lena Dunham is not playing a character named Lena the way that you know these other characters are, but there's a real sense where she is sort of there is this blur between who she is as a real person and as a character. And I think it's undone her. And I think it's a great example of some of the gender stuff we were talking about earlier, Mm -hmm. where, you know, the fact that she is sort of making fun of herself or making fun of a version of herself gets, um, mapped onto her more. So people see her, some, some people at least see her as much more narcissistic, much more uh, clueless than she really is as an actual person because her character is, right? Um, whereas that never happens with uh, with Louis C.K. He's just a genius, you know, even though his character on Louis is not a genius, you know? So I think that's a really interesting dynamic there.
1: Are you mean the 6-7 range on, on Yeah, that?
0: I'd say that. You know, it's, it doesn't use a lot of sort of, the sort of special effect modes of storytelling, but it's reflexivity and it's serialization really, uh, really, I think uh, bring it into uh, these levels and it's authorship.
1: That's one of these here. Uh, Orphan black.
0: Yeah, Orphan Black, I think, is a great example of a show that um, plays with one element that's really crucial in any storytelling mode, but especially in television, which is character. And um, character is – the framework I use, I I, uh, adopt from a film theorist, Murray Smith, who talks about um, three types of – three important elements of character – and one of them is uh, recognition. And like, we don't think about that. The idea is you actually have to recognize a character in order to to engage with them. Um but of course it's true like in a given film or a television show, how do you know that someone is a character versus just an extra? You know, there are all these markers of them being named or being having lines or having you know repeating over over episodes or whatever. Um so recognition is a really interesting element. And of course in Orphan Black, we have the same actress playing I don't know how many it's at, like a dozen or so versions of, of uh, these clones. Um, I think it's, it's quite remarkable the way in which it's playing with this. And oftentimes in the show is asking us to figure out, so which version of her is this and how does that um, play out? So, again, we're very much in that realm of operational aesthetic. We're watching the gears turn. Um, so I would call that like in the eight realm.
1: Interesting. Um, Last question overall here. Uh, What is something that you believed or thought about modern television when you first started noticing, thinking about this 15 years ago, that after the completion of the book you no longer believe? Is there anything?
0: Oh, there's a lot. I'm trying to think of what's a a good one. Um, Ah. I mean I, I would guess I, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say as much as I thought this, and now I believe this. I think that you know, I mentioned um, the role of melodrama, and, and that my thinking on that really changed quite a bit. Um, I was very much of the mindset that many of these programs um, were not melodramas, and in large part is because in television, if you say melodrama, especially serial melodrama. The assumption is we're talking about soap operas, specifically daytime soap operas or primetime soaps, as, as they're sometimes called as well. And I believed that most of the shows I'm talking about are not heavily influenced by soaps and are very distinct in both their storytelling and their emotional engagement. Um, I still believe that, but it's not because I don't think they're melodrama. And in fact, this, this work by Linda Williams, um, much of which was focused on the TV show The Wire, which seems like the least melodramatic show out there, so, you know, highly realist. Um, but she does a great job of reframing what we think of melodrama as not about realism versus spectacle or excess, but rather about the way in which morality and emotion are, are mapped onto one another. And when I read her analysis, I realized, no, 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 wait a minute. Most of these shows I'm talking about, the dramas at least, are in fact melodramas, um, but they are melodramas that don't embrace the excess of daytime soap operas, but have other forms of excess or non-excess, depending on the show, um, or conventions, or even realism or or strives toward realism. So I I feel like my, my thinking about melodrama and its role in these programs and its... Uh, relationship to norms of gender especially really transformed so I'm, I'm, I'm actually very proud of that chapter because it's the one that was hardest to write and involved the most rethinking on my part
1: My guest today has been Jason Mattel he is the author of Complex TV The Poetics of Contemporary Television Jason, thanks for being part of the New Books in Media and Communications Podcast
0: Thanks so much for having me